Section 20 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 20, Chapter 6, The Organization of the Church by C. H. Turner, Part 4. It was a natural corollary of the principles of Western churchmen that the divine society could not possibly be bound to imitate the organization of the earthly society, which it was to supplant. Pope Innocent, in direct opposition to the practice of the East, wrote to Alexander of Antioch in 415 that the civil division of a province ought not carry ecclesiastical division with it. The world might change, not so the church, and therefore it was not fitting. Ad mobilitatem necessitatem mundanarum die exclesium commutare. Pope Leo refused his assent to the so-called 28th canon of the Chalcedon, not merely as an innovation, but because its deduction of the ecclesiastical primacy of Rome from her civil position was quite inconsistent with the doctrine cherished by the popes upon the subject since at least the days of Damasus. Here, then, we have a bifurcation of Eastern and Western ideas, leading to a clear-cut issue, which both sides appealed to the truth of facts, which of them represented the genuine Christian tradition. Certainly the case of provincial organizations favored the Eastern view, for it was taken over bodily from the state. But then it was relatively modern, a far higher antiquity attached to the privileged position of the greater seas, and it was upon the origins and history of their privileges that the answer really turned. Of course, there never had been a time when some churches had not stood out above the rest, and the bishops of those churches above other bishops. The Council of Nicaea, side by side with the canons that prescribed the normal organization by provinces and metropolitans, recognized at the same time certain exceptional prerogatives as guaranteed by ancient custom. Ta Archaea Ethi. In Egypt especially, Alexandria eclipsed its neighbor cities to a degree unparalleled elsewhere in the East. And while it might not have been easy to sanction the authority, Exantia of the Alexandrine bishop over the whole of Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis, if it had been quite unique in the extent, the Nicene fathers could shelter themselves under the plea that the same thing is customary at Rome. A gloss in an early Latin version of the canons interprets the Roman parallel to consist in the care of the suburbicarian churches, that is to say, the churches of the ten provinces of the Vicariate of Rome, central and southern Italy, with the islands of Sicily and Sardinia. Over these wider districts, the Roman and Alexandrine popes, respectively, exercised direct jurisdiction, to the exclusion in either case of the ordinary powers of the metropolitans. The further prescription of the Nicene canon that, in the case of Antioch and in the other provinces, the churches were to keep their privileges, ta presbia, was understood by Pope Innocent to cover similar direct jurisdiction of Alexander of Antioch over Cyprus, and a version of the canons transcribed at Rome from the copies of the same Pope defines the sphere of Antioch as the whole of Coeli Syria. What was it then? that had given these three churches, of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, the special position of the antiquity of which the Nicene Council witnesses. 
Roman theologians from Damasus onwards would have answered unhesitatingly that the motive was deference to the Prince of the Apostles, who had founded the churches of Rome and Antioch himself, and the Church of Alexandria through his disciple Mark. But this answer is open to two fatal retorts. It does not explain why Alexandria, the see of the disciple, should rank above Antioch, the see of the master. And it does not explain why our earliest authorities, both Roman and non-Roman, so persistently couple the name of St. Paul with the name of St. Peter, as joint patron of the Roman Church. Cyprian is the first writer to talk of the chair of Peter only. Therefore we are driven back upon the secular prominence of the three cities as the obvious explanation of their ecclesiastical dignity. Yet, if the appeal to history of the two councils which elevated Constantinople to the second place was thus not without a large measure of justification, their bold expression of Byzantine theory does not really, any better than the contemporary Roman view, cover the whole of the facts. If Franken influence in the ecclesiastical sphere depended more on anything else, on rank and influence in the civil sphere, it did not depend on it entirely. The personality and memory of great churchmen went for something. Carthage was no doubt the civil capital of the diocese of Africa, and Milan of the diocese of Italy, but it would be rash to assert that the inheritance which St. Cyprian left to Carthage and St. Ambrose to Milan was quite worthless or ephemeral. And if this was true of the great bishops of the third and fourth centuries, it was still more true of the apostles whom the whole church united in venerating. Legends of apostolic foundation were often baseless enough, but their frequency testified to the value set upon the thing claimed. Throughout the course of the long struggle with Gnosticism, the teaching of the apostles was the unvarying standard of Christian appeal, and evidence of that teaching was found not only in the written creed and scriptures, but in the unwritten tradition of the churches and episcopal successions founded by apostles. Percura ecclesiastis apostolicus, cries Tertullian confidently to his adversary. Habemus ad numerari eos qui ab apostolus instituti sunt episcopi, in ecclesias et successionis eorum usc ad nos, is Irenaeus's rendering of the same argument and both the Gallican and the African writer go on to select among apostolic churches the Church of Rome, Istiquam Felix Ecclesiasa, Maxime et Antiquissimi et Omnibus, Cognite Ecclesiae Traditionem et Fidem, as for themselves, the obvious witness of this teaching. From the second century onwards, a catena of testimony makes and acknowledges the claim of the Roman Church to be through its connection with St. Peter and St. Paul, in a special sense, the depository and guardian of an apostolic tradition, a type and model of other churches. The Pontificate of Damasus, 366-384, has been more than once mentioned in the preceding pages as the period of the first definite self-expression of the papacy. The continuous history of Latin Christian literature does not commence till after the middle of the 4th century. The dogmatic and exegetical writings of Hilary and Gaul, circa 355, and Barius Victorinus in Rome, circa 360, are the first factors in a henceforward unbroken series. On the beginnings of this new literary development, 
followed quickly the movement, of which we have already noticed, symptoms in other directions for interpreting existing conditions and constructing out of them a coherent and scientific scheme. These conditions had grown up gradually, naturally, and almost at haphazard. It now seemed time to try to put them on to a firm theological basis, and in the process, much that had been fluid, immature, tentative, was crystallized into a hard and fast system. It fell to the able and masterful Damasus in the last years of a long life and a troubled pontificate to attempt what his predecessors had not yet attempted, and to formulate in brief and incisive terms the doctrine of Rome upon creed and Bible and Pope. A council of 378 or 379, after reciting the Nicene symbol, laid down the sober lines of Catholic theology as against the various forms of one-sided speculation, Enomian and Macedonian, Pontinian and Apollinarian, to which the confusions of the half-century since Nicaea had given birth, and the East could do no better than accept the tome of Damasus, as seventy years later it accepted the tome of Leo. Another council, in 382, published the first official canon of Scripture in the West. The influence of Jerome, at that time papal secretary, is traceable in it, and the first official definition of papal claims. Roman primacy, ceteris ecclesius prelata primatum obtinuit, is grounded with obvious reference to the vote of the Council of 381 in favor of Constantinople, on no synodal decisions, but directly on the promise of Christ to Peter, recorded in the Gospel. Respect for Roman tradition imposes next a mention of the fellowship of the Most Blessed Paul, but the dominant motif reappears in the concluding paragraph, and the three C's whose prerogative was recognized at Nicaea are transformed into a Petrine hierarchy with its primacetis at Rome, its secundacetis at Alexandria, and its tertiacetis at Antioch. St. Augustine's theory of the Civitus Dei was, in germ, that of the medieval papacy, without the name of Rome. In Rome itself, it was easy to supply the insertion and to conceive of a dominion still wielded from the ancient seat of government as worldwide and almost as authoritative as that of the empire. The inheritance of the imperial traditions of Rome, left begging by the withdrawal of the secular monarch, fell, as it were, into the lap of the Christian bishop. In this connection, it is a significant coincidence that the first description, which history has preserved to us, of the outward habit of life of a Roman pontiff, belongs to the same period, probably to the same pope, as the formulation of the claim to spiritual lordship. Ammianus was a pagan, but not a bigoted one. He professes, and we need not doubt that he felt, a genuine respect for simple provincial bishops, whose plain living and modest exterior commended them to the deity and his true worshippers. But the atmosphere of the capital, the ostentatio rerum urbanarum, was fatal to unworldliness in religion. After relating that in the year 366, 137 corpses were counted at the end of the day in the Liberian Basilica on the occasion of the fight between the opposing factions of Damasus and Ursinus, 
the historian grimly adds that the prize was one which candidates might naturally count it worth any effort to obtain, seeing that an ample revenue, showered on the Roman bishop by the piety of Roman ladies, enabled him to dress like a gentleman, to ride in his own carriage, and to give dinner parties not less well appointed than the Caesars. Some forty or fifty years after Damasus, the Roman author of the original form of the so-called Isidorian collection of canons, incorporating in his preface the substance of the Damascene definition on the subject of the three Petrine seas, adds to Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch mention also of the honor paid, for the sake of James the brother of the Lord and of John the Apostle and Evangelist, to the bishops of Jerusalem and Ephesus. Mere veneration of the pillars of the apostolic church is not enough to account for this modification of the original triad. The reasons must be sought in the circumstances of the day. If Ephesus was said to have a more honorable place in Synod than other metropolitans, it may be merely that Ephesus, the most distinguished church of those over which Constantinople from this time of St. John Chrysostom asserted jurisdiction, was a convenient stalking horse for the movement of resistance to Constantinopolitan claims. But it is also possible that the phrase was penned after the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, where Memnon of Ephesus was seated next after the bishops of Alexandria and Jerusalem. If the bishop of Jerusalem is accounted honorable by all for the reverence due to so hallowed a spot, and, nevertheless, the first throne, sedes prima, was never by the ancient definition of the fathers reckoned to Jerusalem, lest it should be thought that the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ was on earth and not in heaven. We cannot help suspecting that, at the back of the writer's mind, hovers an uneasy consciousness that the apostolic traditions of Rome, which were so readily brought into play against Constantinople, might find an inconvenient rival in Jerusalem. Not that at Jerusalem, apart from certain emphasis on the position of James, the Lord's brother, there was never any conscious competition with Rome, but it was true that at about the time that this canonical collection was published, the See of Jerusalem was just pushing a campaign of aggrandizement, carried on for over a century, to a triumphant conclusion. End of section 20